take a Bible, please, and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans, chapter 1. My, uh, I have a daughter named Margaret. Uh, she's, she has three children, and they were home. They live on the West Coast. They were home at Christmas time, and she asked me, what are you preaching on these days? And I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a series on sex. And she said, why? And I wasn't sure whether, you know, there was the normal daughterly certainty that her father has never thought about sex and truly knows nothing about it, <laughs> whether that was behind it. But she, she said, somebody, is there a problem at the church? And I said, no, we, we have been going through 1 Corinthians, and we've come to chapter 5, chapters 5 and 6, which deal in part with some sexual issues and matters of immorality. So what I'm planning to do is approach this subject slowly by taking a look uh, in the next three weeks at the Bible's view of sex, going back to Genesis and moving forward from it. And then when we come to chapter 5, we'll be able to make more sense out of exactly why he is approaching the topic that he is and the problem that they are facing there. But I'd like to read from Romans chapter 1. This is on page 939, if you pick up a Bible and turn there. I'm going to read verses 16 through 23. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Listen carefully. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Let's pray. Gracious God, again, we come before you and we are in such need of you speaking to us. We thank you that you have given to us your word and that you have promised as we gather together with hungry and obedient hearts, you yourself will open your lips and speak to each one as he or she needs. And we pray that this morning you would do that. Help us to understand these words and what they say to us about our society, our culture, ourselves, and the work of our church. And we pray that you would guide us this way in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I suppose it doesn't need any defense or much explanation to say that we live in a sex-crazed culture. Sex is blatantly used to sell everything from toothpaste to television. 
uh, graphic and provocative images of the human body in various states of dress or undress are flashed before our eyes with mind-numbing regularity. They're plastered on the sides of buses. They're on pages of magazines. At the entrance to clothing stores, particularly for the young, they are right there, and uh, endlessly we see them on television. The entertainment industry has managed to permeate every single topic, show, movie, advertisement, event, with a thinly veiled sexual innuendo that is so relentless that we don't even notice it anymore. And Madonna, so yesterday. <laughs> her, uh, her children have eclipsed her, Miley Cyrus and Lady Gaga and Katy Perry and such. And they're like held up as the goddesses of the adolescent generation. And the internet just requires a few push of the keys and you can have access to graphic images of anything imaginable and even some unimaginable things that you want. Now, the news flash we need to hear is that it's not, not really any different than it's ever been. Things have always been this way. King Solomon said in 1000 B.C. approximately, uh, there is nothing new under the sun. And that is true. There are only new ways of portraying it. The same immorality, the same attitudes have always been available and found in human culture, though we might say at times they wax and wanes as civilization Civilizations come and go, but the underlying attitude hasn't changed. And we know that in part from the city of Corinth in 55 AD and the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Corinth, uh, we know from records of ancient history, was um, one of the most technologically advanced cities of its day. It was a city that had been very great under Greek civilization, and then it declined. And uh, about 100 years before this letter was written, it had been reestablished by the Romans. It is situated, or was situated, on an isthmus uh, in which it formed a perfect place for a seaport, and so it was one of the major seaports for all of the goods that were going from Europe to Asia and all points in between. And it was a cosmopolitan, thriving, up-and-coming city. Young people moved there to make their way in the world. And it was sort of um, a saying that you could find anything you wanted in Corinth. In fact, to kind of sum up just the moral state of the culture there, there is at the ruins of Corinth, where I've been a couple of times, overlooking the city on an Acropolis, a huge temple. And the temple was one of the major focal points in the ancient world. People would go there to vacation and to visit this temple. And the temple in the mid-50s, the first century, was said to house 1,000 or over 1,000 male and female cult prostitutes who were a part of the worship and were available to men and women as they engaged in the pagan form of worship that was found there. And so the things that we think about now and that are available to us now are really no different. In some ways, they're better. We've only made the, the images of them more available to people and more easy. The problem I want to think about really isn't the nature of how sex is used in our culture and the fact that we live in a sex-crazed culture. What I want to think about is the fact that Corinth has crept into the church. 
That happened in the first century, too, and that's why Paul had to write in his letter about a couple of specific problems that they were having that he wanted to correct. And we know today that research from people like the Pew Foundation and the Gallup uh, Institute, that when they do polling, they have said for a couple of decades that there seems to be very little difference between those who claim to be Christians and those who don't. There's very little difference in lifestyle on a whole range of matters from television viewing habits to lying to stealing and even sexual morality. And that's astounding to me. I mean, most of us, I suppose, if we go to church, we'd like to think if we hear that 70% or so of young people are sexually active when they're in high school or by the end of high school, if we hear something like that, we assume that the other 30% go to our church, right? I mean, that's how we think. But unfortunately, we shouldn't think that way. And what I want to ask this morning is why? Why has Corinth crept into the church? Why are the attitudes found among Christian people in general? And I obviously haven't polled this church. I'm not speaking in specific about us. But why is it that basic and clear principles of morality that are so clearly taught in the Bible are so flagrantly violated today, denied, ignored? Why is it that there's little difference in our country between the behavior of Christians and non-Christians in general? Why is it that we as the people of God are convinced that the Bible gives to us a way of living and a way of thinking that is superior because we believe that it has been given to us by God himself, and uh, yet they're so rarely followed, it seems. Well, there is an answer given today, and it's an answer different than the answer that was given 20 or 30 years ago. It's much clearer than the answer. The answer that comes to us from our culture is simply that you Christians are wrong. You're moral and ethical standards are simply unrealistic for people. They're antiquated and they're impossible. Especially this is found in academia and among certain politicians. It's being stated very clearly that Christianity is simply a a repressive, dogmatic belief system that harms people by setting up impossible standards and then uh, telling them how wrong they are when they violate them. There is a general belief that it is impossible for people to remain uh, sexually inactive until they're married and to confine sexual activity to marriage. That that is so unrealistic that the best we can hope for is simply to provide uh, for safe sex. And in that kind of culture in which, different from the past, we're being told, you Christians are wrong and we're not going to put up with them anymore, which is what we're hearing essentially, A person who speaks of any kind of restraint is going to be ridiculed. Um, What they're saying is, you're wrong, and we're not going to put up with it anymore. And that probably shouldn't surprise us. I mean, Jesus said, a servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will also keep your word. So, I mean, he was rather clear that we were going to experience people not liking us, saying that our behaviors or our expectations are wrong. And Jesus' words are being fulfilled with one problem. I know people don't like us, but I would rather they didn't like us for the right reason, for the proper reason. I'm not sure that not liking us because of our sexual ethics is the best reason to not be liked. 
So I want to think about why has Corinth crept into the church? I am quite convinced, and I hope to convince you in the next few weeks, that it's not because we're wrong. It's not because the Bible is uh, a book that was written so long ago that it's about people and cultures so far removed from us that it has no relevance to us today. And it's not, as used to be said, that Christians have exhibited uh, an improper understanding of the Bible's view of sex. They've been such prudes about the whole thing that people have turned away from it. I don't think that's the reason either. It's not because we're wrong, demeaning, dogmatic, and, and it's also not because we haven't uh, stood for the truth clearly enough and accurately enough. The reason is far different and it's far deeper than that, and that's what I want to think about this morning. And you need to turn to this passage in Romans chapter 1, if you would again, page 939. This really is the beginning of the book of Romans. Before that, there's an introduction that's important, but when he starts into the, the theme that he's going to then unfold for the rest, the entire rest of the long letter that he wrote to this church, he starts with these words in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also from the Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says. I have this wonderful message to give to people, and I have no embarrassment about it. And the reason is because it's a message about salvation, God rescuing humans from something. And this message is so great and so impressive, God's rescue of us, that I, I, I want to tell everyone about it. I'm not ashamed of this message. Now, he says it's a great message, but it's not simply an impressive message. It's a great message because it's a message about God's power to save. Now, God's power to save doesn't really make much, not mean much, unless you understand what it is he's saving you from. And that's really what unfolds here. There's this great and saving message. But why is such a message necessary? Why do we even talk about it, think about it? Why do we use the word salvation, we Christians? Well, verse 18 is the key, and that's what I want to focus on this morning for uh, a few minutes here. It starts with the word for, and that's important because that means because. He's now going to explain why this message, that the whole letter is going to unfold in its fullness, why this message is so significant. For, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The reason that there is a message, and it's about God's willingness to save, it's about something that God's Son has done for us, is because of God's wrath. He says the wrath of God, the, the anger of God is revealed, present tense, is revealed. Right now, he says, you look around you in the world and there are signs every day in every way that God's righteous anger against sin is being revealed against people. And it's being revealed because of ungodliness and unrighteousness. And that's what I want to focus on. Those are the two words that are used here. And those words are not simply saying the same thing. I mean, there are times when people vary their language just to uh, make rhetorical impact. But I don't think that's the case here. He's using these two words in this order very purposefully. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
Now, I want you to note the order. It is ungodliness first and unrighteousness second. Ungodliness is the state of not being right with God, of being estranged from God, and not reflecting God's character. And unrighteousness is a um, wrong ethical or moral behavior, living unrighteously, immorality, injustice, hatred, all of those things. Or if you turn it around, godliness is founded on a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, which requires some proper understanding of who God is and what he is about. And unrighteousness is what flows out of that in terms of behavior. And uh, we are told God is angry with humans. This anger does not mean that he is, is a, a wrathful God in the sense of, of just boiling over with a kind of anger that strikes everyone around him as an angry person might do. This is God's controlled, just response to the presence of sin. And it says that God is angered with us particularly because we are ungodly and unrighteous. God is not simply angry with us uh, because we do not think of him as we should, but it's also because we do not live as we should as a result. God is not simply angry with us because we're not doing what he wants us to do. He's angry with us, first of all, because we do not even think rightly about him. It's that that the rest of the passage unfolds. And we won't take much time to look at it, but he, he goes on to say what is known about God is plain to them, meaning to all human beings, because it was made clear by the created order. The things that are around us tell us two things, he says. Verse 29, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, are clearly seen being understood through what has been made. In other words, from God's perspective, the things that he has made, the order of creation, should be absolutely convincing to every human being who is able to think that there is at least a God of infinite power. People should know that there is a God. They may not know the character of this God, whether he's good or not, but we should know that there is a God of infinite power. And the first problem, he says, is that we are not godly. Now, it's important to think clearly about this. The, the simple truth is that this is what the whole burden of what I want to say this morning is this. The only real foundation for um, morality is godliness. The only real foundation for life choices that you make is a right relationship with God. Otherwise, there's no real basis for the moral decisions that you have to make. And so I want to explore that for a few minutes. What do I mean that the only basis upon which moral choices can be purposefully made with a sense of confidence that they're the right choices is godliness. That is, a comprehension of God and enough about his character that you realize some things. So uh, let's explore this. The foundation of all of everything that I've said so far is that there is a personal creator God who is um, great and good. That's the foundation. What I mean is that there is a God who is a person. I don't mean by that he's a human being. God is not a human being. But when we say that God is a person, what we mean is that he has the elements of personhood or personality as we conceive it, things that we understand and share in. So, for example, we know from the Bible God thinks, 
and he feels, and he chooses, and he loves. And we would say those things are like the basic element of what personality consists of. It's what makes us different from the, the created things that have no life in them, like rocks and trees. They, they don't think or feel or act. They don't love. It's what makes us different in degree from all of the living creatures that they are. We know that dogs, those who love dogs, they know that dogs on a rudimentary level think and feel and act, and they even love. But they don't on the level that we do. We understand that intuitively, and we also understand it by observation. We're in a different category. Well, the Bible tells us God is that in a superlative way, is far beyond and above us. And so we should know from the things that have been made that there is a creator God. But the Bible reveals to us something that we know beyond what nature tells us, and that is the character of this God. That this God, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, present everywhere, rules over everything, is also good. So we say he's great because he possesses all these things, power, knowledge, presence. But he's good because he has revealed to us that he's just and he's righteous and he's merciful and he's loving. That's the foundation we have, both in nature and in the Bible, that there is one creator God who is uh, all-powerful, personal, and good. Now, I want to build on that a next step. We gather that such a God, if he is truly good, would expect or call upon the creatures that he has made that are most like him to live in a way that would reflect his goodness. And that's what is usually called the moral law. The moral law is the sense that God has expectations upon human beings, and the expectations flow out of his very being. God is good, and that means he is trustworthy, he is right, he is pure, and God has expectations along those same lines of his character on us. We're told in the Bible that that is imprinted upon the human mind and conscience. All human beings in conscience have at least a rudimentary understanding of what God expects of human life. And that is why we live in a world in which all the cultures and all the places at all times do have certain similarities. That's why we even can have a UN, a gathering of the nations, because there's some sense different in many respects, but some basic idea, there is something called rightness and there's something that's wrong. There is moral goodness, there's proper ways to live, and there are ways that are wrong. So it's imprinted on conscience. We're also told that it was revealed to our first parents in the garden and that the basic outlines of the moral law of God are found in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. And we also know from Scripture that as the Bible unfolds its story as history unfolded. God revealed his moral law in clear terms at Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5, God gave the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the clear expression of God's moral demands on human beings, which at least in rudimentary form are imprinted on our conscience and were known intuitively by our first parents. And these commands tell us exactly what God desires for us to do, at least in some key areas of life what he wants us to be, and the great satisfaction that we will have when we do that. Now, that, that's what lies behind this. In many cultures and people, even if they have not been Christian in the Bible sense of the word, have at least had this foundation 
And by foundation, I mean a personal God, a personal God who is all-powerful and is also good, and a personal God who calls upon us to reflect his character by living in a certain way. That's like the basic foundation. And then there are these steps that this talks about. God's anger is revealed because it is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So godliness results in righteousness, or ungodliness results in unrighteousness, and they always go in that order. So there's right thinking about God first. There's right thinking about how to live second. There's right relationship with God first. There's moral behavior second. Now what happens if the foundation is eroded? foundation I described, this personal God who places moral demands on his creatures. Well, I want to look at it in terms of something that's found in the Bible a few times that is sometimes called the three-generation slide. There are pictures in the Bible of three generations that moved from godliness to ungodliness, from righteousness to unrighteousness. And why did that happen? So just as an example, if you read the life stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you clearly see it. If you read the life stories of David, Solomon, and Rehoboam, you clearly see this three-generation slide. The Bible doesn't teach that every three generations this happens or anything like that. It simply is meant to show that there are three steps in moving people away from godliness. So let's think about that. How does that show up here? Well, the idea is basically that at one time, a large number of people had a belief that there is a loving creator who had given a moral law. Now, that was true in the history of our country. A larger number of people had that basic foundational belief that there was a loving creator who had given a moral law. Some of them were the founding fathers of our country who were not Christians. They were deists, definitely not Christians, but they still retained this basic idea that there, there is a God, a loving creator who has given a moral law, And so they thought a man ought to be faithful to his wife, a woman ought to be faithful to her husband, not just so they don't get caught, not just because they don't want to hurt their children or be disgraced, but because God himself is a God of faithfulness, and he expects faithfulness from people. So they were moral because they were godly, at least in the foundational sense of understanding who God is and relying on that. Now, in time, over a period of time, that foundation was eroded. Some of it was eroded because of arguments against God and against Christianity. Some of it was simply eroded in the passage of time and the fact that love wanes over generations. Poor God, that seems to be pictured apart from something God would do. And and what happens in the second generation, the second period, is that you have people grow up who somehow are not um, exposed to the godliness part of it, but they retain the righteousness side of it. This was my father's generation, if I think of my own family. In my father's generation, there was uh, a, a, a complete lack of faith in God. I don't mean the whole generation, but that was true in my father's life. His parents had been somewhat religious, you know, but they believed in God. They believed that uh, there was a God and that he gave a moral law. And they didn't take him to church very much, didn't talk to him a bunch about those things. And he went to a school where he was taught all kinds of principles of God doesn't really exist and so forth. And so 
he was not a godly person. And there arises a generation that no longer retained this sense of relationship with God, but they retained the moral framework. That's what happens in the second generation. So they're, they're righteous people in the sense of morality, but it's morality without a deep sense of godliness. In the first generation, there's godliness and righteousness. In the second generation, there's ungodliness, but there's still righteousness. It's retained as a framework of things. Now, the third generation arises. And in the third generation, this question is asked, why? Why should I be good? So, parents of the second generation say, you ought to uh, find one woman and marry her. Don't have sex before you get married and be faithful to that one woman. And the second generation says, well, okay. I mean, it's been good in your life. I'll keep doing it. The third generation says, why? Now, if the answer is, because I told you, you already know that's not sufficient, right? It's not going to work. I, I tried that, by the way. It doesn't work. I mean, you, you don't have to try it yourself. It, it doesn't work. If the, second, if the second generation says to the third one, well, because it will hurt you, I have to tell you that's simply not true. Now, it is true that there are dangers of sexual immorality, but it's also true that only a fraction of people who are immoral actually gain a sexually transmitted disease. So it's not going to be true of every person. Or, or if you say, well, because you'll be happier if you do it this way than if you uh, are immoral. That's not true either. I remember going to college, and college was the first time I was kind of exposed to this huge world. And in my college, it was a huge state university, on my dorm floor, there were people sleeping together, you know, boys and girls all the time. I'd never been exposed to that before. And, and what I realized pretty quickly was this. They weren't any less happy than I was. I mean, it didn't automatically result in unhappiness. And I don't know, you might want to argue long-term unhappiness and all that kind of thing, but it had no discernible effect on their state of enjoyment of life compared to mine. And so it's just not true. If all you can say is because it will hurt you or it's the best thing for you, it's not going to work because many people are immoral and they're happy and they don't seem to struggle with guilt and they don't get hurt. And if you say, well, it's the best way to live, you know, the answer to that is, really? How do I know that's the best way to live? Other people live differently, and they seem to do fine. How do I know? And so the third generation chucks it all. They say, I'm not going to do that because you don't have any reason. And that's deep as deep as it goes. It isn't very satisfying. So the, the third generation throws away the moral precepts of the previous generation, and you've moved from godliness and righteousness all the way to ungodliness and unrighteousness in three generations. That's the basic reason why Corinth creeps into the church. The basic reason is this. For too long in our culture, Christianity has been represented by second-generation Christians. People whose godliness is rather thin... And their understanding of God is rather thin, but they still hold to the basic framework of morality. And if that's what the church is all about, if we're here to try to teach our children to be moral, then we're failing at the main purpose of the church. We're failing at the message that God has given to us. When the church makes it her chief purpose to preach morality, she fails to present the one thing, the distinctive message 
that makes morality meaningful, and that is the gospel. Paul doesn't say, I'm not ashamed of the Ten Commandments. You know, he didn't say, I'm not ashamed of the moral framework that I encourage people to live by, teach them to live by. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And when we simply try to make people moral, we fail to proclaim the one message that will make people godly. For godliness is the only firm foundation for morality. The church's great message is the gospel. It's what we ought to be singing about, thinking about, praying about, talking about, studying. This message that there is a God who is both great and good, and indeed he has given a moral law to his creatures, but the Bible and the message of Jesus builds on that and tells us, but we have broken that moral law. Every one of us in thought, word, and deed has broken every one of the Ten Commandments. And even if we only wanted to look at the very exterior of our lives, we've broken many of the commandments in explicit ways as we move through life, even if we haven't broken all of them. And because of that, we are under God's just wrath that is against sin. And so we begin, as we start to contemplate that, to understand sin not just as a vague concept of doing something wrong or not just something that religious people seem to want to make us feel guilty about, but sin as a violation of God's standards. I mean, that's what sin is. It's a violation of God's moral law. And when we realize we've violated God's standards, then we're capable of understanding that God himself has acted on our behalf by doing something about that, that is to solve a problem we could not solve in our lost estate, being dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. In order to save us, God sent his son. He died in the place of all who will ever come to God through him. And when we come to God through him, we're told we receive eternal life. And it's in that way that people come to cling to Christ. They cling to him like the only one who can help them in the problem that they have. The problem that they have is not simply that they aren't living right. It's because they're not living right because they can't really live right according to God's standards. And they can't really live right because they don't have the life of God inside of them. And eternal life is God's quality of life that is infused into the soul when a person trusts in Christ. And having received grace and forgiveness, people begin to realize they suddenly have the power to do what God calls them to do. The whole point is, I said in the beginning, morality is founded on godliness. Only a personal experience of a relationship with God can move you to be a moral person from the heart. And one of the main functions of a church, if it's a healthy church, one of the main functions of our church is to increase your vision of God and your experience of God to make him bigger and stronger and greater and more holy than you ever imagined before. It's to increase your vision of God's greatness and his goodness so that you will also be drawn to experience his presence and his power through trusting in Jesus Christ. Morality is only founded upon godliness. So what I'm going to do for the next few weeks is talk about um, Christian, uh, the Bible's view of sex. Um, as we were preparing for this year, 
Paul and I were talking, and he's taking on a couple of projects, and we've been talking about a couple of projects that at the beginning of the year are going to take some of his time behind the scenes, working with staff and others to accomplish certain things. So I said, well, I'll do the first series of messages. But I knew underlying it was Paul was, uh, he's so uncomfortable talking about sex. And I knew that all the young people in the church would just love to have grandpa talk to them about sex. So I said, that's, I'll take that on. But we are doing this. I am doing this in part for the sake of the young people in the church. And, and the reason is you hear such a bewildering array of voices that tell you so many things, so many different things, that uh, you, you're bewildered, I think. And I hope you'll listen to me and you'll evaluate what I say, but you'll also look at the Bible and you'll evaluate it, what it says. Because my goal is not for you to believe something or do something because I think it's a good idea but to do it because you see this is God's word. This is what God says I should do. And I'm also concerned, and we should be concerned for parents who are raising children today. I've raised four children. I know the difficulties. Uh, But I know that parents today are having their confidence in Scripture subtly eroded or weakened so that some fathers may feel that the Bible doesn't really contain the answers and that they can't really strongly guide their children in ways of scriptural morality. I see people moving away from that and allowing all kinds of things because they figure, well, it's a different world. It's different than it was when I was growing up, and things are going on that we didn't do, but that's just the way it is. And, and I'm concerned to try to give you some of those answers, but I hope, above all, it will give you a sense in a greater way that there is a God who has given to us his moral law And whether it's easy to do or hard to do, which I suppose different generations experience differently, it's what God wants us to do and to stand for. In no way can a parent guarantee the results of parenting. The Bible doesn't even teach us the things it does so that we can guarantee our children will grow up to be godly. All the Bible tells us we can guarantee is ourselves. We can seek to be godly parents. We can't reduce godly children. That's God's work. But we can be godly parents. I hope to convince you of that. But most of all, I also think from past experience that I'm concerned for the pain that the subject I'm going to bring up the next few weeks will will be to some of you particularly. Um, For some of you in this room, I'm sure that this series will raise many painful thoughts. You will think of ways in which in your past you were sinned against you were mistreated, misused by someone else and the pain that flowed out of that. And or you'll think about ways in your past in which you sinned against other people willingly. I mean, both of those things arise when we begin to talk about God's purpose for sex. And and, uh, you may have memories of regretful behavior of your past And there's no way I can speak on this subject without that happening. It happens automatically, whether my goal was to do that or not. But my goal is not just to convince you that God is right. In fact, you probably already know that God is right if you feel some sense of regret. However, my goal is not just to convince you that God is right. It's to bring you to face in a deeper way what grace is. Grace that forgives us and cleanses us and makes us new inside, grace uh, through which we are capable 
of choosing to live differently than we did in the past. And I, I, I would like you to come to a place, and this is the nature of the Christian life, I'd come to a deeper place where you say before God, I am forgiven. And it's not just a glib statement. It's with real understanding of what a God of infinite holiness has done for you through his son. And I hope that all of us, in the end, will be able to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Again, fathers, we come before you. We thank you that you are a God who longs for us to draw near to you. You even invite us to do that. You have told us that your arms are open wide to receive us when we come to you repentantly and we come to you trusting in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And while that is such a simple couple of sentences to say, it is also something that it takes a lifetime to even begin to experience to allow you to move into all the nooks and crannies of our lives, to open every door, and to bring us face to face with the reality of your forgiveness and your grace. And we pray that you would do that and move forward. In Jesus' name.